Good morning, Anacostia River Church. How's everybody this morning? Good. I want to add my sort of greetings to the greetings that Jahil extended and others have extended. We welcome you here this morning as we worship together as God's people. Uh, there are some little people among us who are welcome now to be dismissed to their children's program. In the back, you see Miss John with a yellow sweater on. Uh, so if you are up to four years old, uh, just if you're sort of shy of your fifth birthday, uh, you're welcome to join Miss Jonna and uh, to follow her to the children's program. So if you'd like to do that, you're fine. Uh, also, if you need a Bible this morning, uh, we have some Bibles we'd be happy to provide for you. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, one of the brothers will bring you a Bible. This will be helpful uh, to follow us along, follow along with us uh, in the Word of God as we think about what God's Word has to say for us this morning. All right? Everybody have a Bible that wants one? Okay. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. All right. Even the pastors need a Bible sometimes. All right. So, this morning, if you're visiting with us for the first time, um, one of the things we want you to know about us is that we are committed to God's Word. And this morning, we are beginning a new series of sermons uh, going through what we call our statement of faith. We use here what's called the London Baptist Confession. It's written in 1689. Uh, it's written in London, as the name suggests. It was written at an important time in the history of the church. Uh, this is sort of in the era called the Reformation, where Protestants were at pains to make it clear that they thought the Bible taught some things that were quite different than Roman Catholics taught. And in England and various parts of Europe, there's this great struggle uh, in government as to whether or not governments would be officially Catholic or officially Protestant, and those struggles also went on in the church. And so this, this document, the London Baptist Confession, which you can find online uh, if you just Google it, it grows out of that period of time where Protestants were defining what the Christian faith entails from the Bible and summarizing that in statements of faith. Well, it also makes another distinction. It's called the London Baptist Confession. Uh, and so there are a couple, of a couple of sections in it we'll get to later that sort of define what, what Baptists believe over and against what other Protestants believe, Presbyterians or Anglicans and so on. Now, 95, 98% of what Baptists believe we hold in common with other Protestants, Presbyterians, Anglicans, and so on. We differ really in two points, on baptism and on how the church is to be governed. Again, we'll talk about those things later. But this morning, we want to start where the confession starts. And we want to start here because it's, it's out of the issue of the Bible and what the Bible is and what the Bible says about itself that all the other issues are defined, that all the other beliefs that Christians hold uh, are in fact formed and develop. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 19. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, you'll find it on page 456. Psalm 19 on page 456. And as you turn to Psalm 19, I want to ask you a question. You ever had the experience of talking with someone who perhaps was not a Christian, and they were self-evidently not Christians. They, they would tell you themselves that they're not Christians. And you would speak with them about God. And, and they might say something like this. God told me. Or I believe in God. I pray to God. And you carry on in the conversation. And they'll say something along the lines of, you know, God, God said to me. One of the things that humanity believes all across the world 
is that God speaks. The only persons who deny that really are, are atheists. But, but whether you are a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jew or a Sikh or a Christian, or whether, whether you are practicing some pagan animistic religion, you ever notice that if you look all around the world, people sort of have this basic claim that God in some way is communicating to them and communicating with them. Now, because that's so widespread, I think it's important that we ask three questions this morning. This will be the outline for the sermon. First question we ought to ask and answer is, must you be a Christian to really hear from God? Must you be a Christian to really hear from God? When we look at Psalm 19, we want to answer that question from verses 1 to 6. The second question we want to ask ourselves is, can we be sure that we understand what God is saying? Can we be sure that we understand what God is saying? So if he does speak, how do we know what he said? And for that, we want to look in verses 7 to 11 of Psalm 19. And then finally, we want to ask ourselves the question, what should we do when we hear God speak? What should we do when we hear God speak? Verses 12 to 14. So if you're using the Bibles that we provided, page 456, Psalm 19. And if you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter 19 or Psalm 19, that's the large number. And when I say verses 1 to 6, I'm referring to the small numbers there. Okay? Let's look at God's word together. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now this that we just read, this psalm, is in fact a part of what we call God's word. And this first question, must a person be a Christian 
in order to hear God speak is a, is a pressing question. As I said, all kinds of people make claim to having heard from God or, or make claim that God speaks to them or, or through them. So what's the answer to the question? Well, in a sense, it is true that God speaks to all people without regard to whether or not they are Christians. This is what the first six verses is telling us, really. The first six verses are, the whole psalm is poetry, right? This is the ancient worship songs of Israel. And and like all good poetry, the, the writer is using language creatively. He's taking images and, and, he, and he's taking metaphors and he's, he's using these, these word symbols, if you will, to communicate to us an even deeper truth. That's the powerful thing about symbols. The truths they point to are actually stronger than the symbol themselves. So, so my wedding ring is a symbol of my covenant commitment to Christy and my love for her and our union together but I'd far rather the reality with Christie than the ring. And so it is with these word pictures. We're being pressed into some truths that are actually stronger than the power of language. And so the writer tells us here about five or six things using the, the gift of poetry to help us understand how God speaks to all people everywhere all the time. Notice the first thing, the, the subject of his speech in verse 1. See what it says there? The heavens declare, what? The glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Instead of just saying God speaks through creation, you see what he does? He gives the sky and the heavens sort of characteristics like human beings. He personifies them. So so imagine the, the heavens declaring, speaking. The sky now proclaims like a human preacher. And what do they declare? What's their subject? It's the glory of God. That the creation is saying out loud, God is glorious. The creation becomes a symbol that itself is is pretty powerful, but it points to a more powerful reality still. You can see your prettiest sunset. Or the most glorious sunrise when the sky turns shades of purple and and orange and and then lighten up in the yellows and and gleams bright. The most beautiful sunrise and the most beautiful sunset, the handiwork of God, all you are ever really seeing is the sky preaching, God is glorious. God is great. The word glory, the the Hebrew word there, has has as its meaning uh, something like weightiness. That God is heavy. That God has a a serious fame. That's That's what the word is getting at. That God is great. And the heavens speak it out. They they declare it. That's the subject of God speaking in creation. And so the next time someone we meet who seems to us to be making claims about God speaking to them. A very natural question to ask is, what did he say? Because what the heavens declare is his glory. Notice the second thing here, not only the subject of his speech, but notice the the steadiness of his speech. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, there's no time, day or night, where the heavens aren't declaring the glory of God. 
He speaks of his glory in creation constantly, steadily, without fail, day after day, night after night. The day pours forth speech. You, it's, just, it's just, the day is full of words about the glory of God. And did you notice this? The night, the night reveals knowledge. It's a striking imagery, isn't it? It's not what you expect of night and darkness. Darkness normally is associated with concealing, with hiding. But here, even the night is made to unhide something, is made to reveal something, is made to declare the glory of God. You can't even hide his glory in the darkness of night. God is speaking of his glory and steadily he speaks it. Verse 3, he speaks silently. It's a silent speech. You see there, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And when we say God speaks through creation, we don't mean he uses literal words in creation. There is no voice. There, there are no words that people can hear through the, through the creation. In other words, what God has made is God's nonverbal speech. Research scientists tell us that most of human communication, somewhere between 65% and 95%, is nonverbal. It's not the words that we use, it's the facial expressions, the tone of voice, the body language, the gestures. Then 95% of what we say to people, we, we say non-verbally, without, without the use of words. And so you, you know that um, a head nod means different things. A moment ago I cited that statistic, Chelsea nodded, agreeing. But now if I'm out on the corner and I see a brother and I do like that, it's like, what's up? Or if there's something going on between us and I do like that, he's like, what's up? <laughs> you know, the, the gestures, the tone, the body language communicates all kinds of things, don't it? Now, if God who made us and has made us to communicate 65 to 95% nonverbally, if he made us that way, don't we suppose that he has nonverbal ways of speaking to his creation? The celestial bodies themselves, the sun, the moon, the stars, is God's body language to his creation. Day after day, night after night, in silent speech, they pour forth his glory and proclaim his greatness. Notice another thing in verses 4 and verse 6. It's not only a silent speech, it is a spreading speech. It, this, this word, this voice, it spreads. Notice, it goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, put it together for you. He says, the sky proclaims the handiwork of God day after day, night after night. Well, if that's true, well, I'll put it in a question. Is there any place where there is no sky? Don't, don't think too hard on that now. There's, no, there's no, there's no place where there is no sky. There's no place where there is no day and night. And so if the sky is speaking of God's glory and the day and night are speaking of God's glory, then with every revolution of the earth and every rising and setting of the sun, then everywhere the voice of God non-verbally is being spread throughout the entire creation of God. There's no place where his voice does not reach, even to the ends of the earth. It's a spreading speech. 
Notice one last thing about God speaking in his creation. It's a satisfying speech. It's a satisfying speech. Notice, let me read verses 4 to 6 again for us. Second part of verse 4. He says, in them, in the sky and in the day and the night, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. You see the picture there, that the sky is like a tent. And ancient Israel would have known a lot about tents. They, they lived in tents for much of their history. And not only that, they had a tent called the tabernacle, which was at the center of their camp and the center of their worship. And in that tabernacle, in that tent, is where God's glory dwell. They knew a lot about tents. And here now, he uses a picture very common to ancient Israel to give us a picture of how God's word goes forth. The sky is like a tent, and out of this tent comes the sun. And the son, he uses another metaphor, is like a bridegroom. He's like a, a husband who's recently married coming out of his tent after his wedding night. And we don't get that, how that man looks, how that man feels. Well, he switches the metaphor next. Notice what he tells us. It's like a strong runner. It's like Usain Bolt running forth with strength and running his course. It reminds me of that famous line from the movie Chariots of Fire. A movie about Eric Liddell, the Christian athlete who was a, an Olympic athlete. And there's this exchange where they're talking about running, and he's talking about his joy in running. And he says this, when I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel God's pleasure. And so now God inspires David to use that same kind of thought here, that when his word runs forth like the sun from one side of creation over to the other side of creation, warming everything it touches, it goes forth in pleasure, like a bridegroom coming out of his tent on his honeymoon night. There's joy when God speaks. He's not thundering from the heavens, angry, holding a lightning bolt, ready to strike everyone. He is judge, and he is great, and he is holy, but he's speaking to us out of great joy and great love, saying, behold my glory. See my greatness. He makes the creation a kind of sacrament, visible words, like baptism and communion. And when we are baptized, we, we picture being buried with Christ and raised to new, newness of life. And when we come to the Lord's Supper and we break bread and we drink the wine, we picture the broken body of Jesus Christ and the blood shed for the remission of our sins. Those are visible words. And so it is with the whole of creation. Visible words declaring the glory of God. And what David is saying poetically here is that God speaks of his glory all the time, everywhere, to everyone with great joy. You don't have to be a Christian to hear that. You only have to be observant. But now, if you're not yet a Christian, there is great danger of distorting God's message. Turn with me 
Keep your finger in Psalm 19. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, this is in the New Testament. One of the things that we find in our statement of faith is this statement about partway through chapter 1 that says the, the most sure way to interpret Scripture is with other Scripture. And this is, this is what we're doing right now. We want to lay Psalm 19, and Psalm 19's picture of God speaking all the time to everyone through creation next to Romans chapter 1 so that we understand the limitations of that speech. And then we move to the second question. Does God speak today? Absolutely. Do you have to be a Christian to hear him? Not, not at all. In fact, the Bible makes it plain that there's something wrong with us if we don't hear God speaking through creation. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. See there what the Bible says. For what can be known about God is plain to them, referring to all of humanity, because God has shown it to them. Well, how has he done that? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since when? The creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made. What's the result? So they are without excuse. No one has an excuse for not knowing something about the existence and the greatness of God because he's made it plain, the Bible says, in creation. But the problem is not God's creation. The problem is human pride. Notice what, what Romans 1 goes on to say, verse 21 to 23. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What did they do? But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, to see the creation and to know that there's a great creator behind it, but not honor that creator, that can only be called foolish. That can only be called a dark mind. And so this is what has happened to humanity. Verse 22, notice, they go on. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is how we get idolatry. You travel the world and go to places, one thing you see almost everywhere is worship. Human beings worship. And part of why human beings worship is because God, our creator, is speaking. And he's speaking in creation. And so we, we get echoes of his voice in creation, but, but then getting wise, getting all sophisticated, you know, getting, getting, getting all clever about things, we start making gods that we like. We start fashioning idols that, that look like men with eight arms or reptiles and beasts. There's only enough knowledge in God's speech through creation to make us idolaters. And in the creation, because we're in, we have no excuse, there's only enough speech in creation to condemn us to judgment. To know that God really exists, but not to really know that God. No man comes to God merely by watching sunrises. And sunsets. Notice, notice one other thing while we're in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 
going back to verse 18. These things are really spoken. They're plain. People really know them, and yet people become idolaters in unrighteousness. Verse 18 tells us something. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, the problem is not God speaking. The problem is that man is not listening. Most people who claim to hear God speak to them who are at the same time suppressing the truth about God. I mean, imagine it. The whole world is proclaiming the glory of God, and men act like they can't see it, act like they can't hear it. It's like standing on top of a volcano trying to prevent an eruption with your bare hands. No, man, when, when this revelation explodes forward, it washes over all of creation. And all of creation is meant in humility to acknowledge that God exists and to worship him for who he is. But man, as sinner, tries very hard to suppress the truth. Before I was a Christian, I was a Muslim. And after I left Islam, I was for a season an agnostic and an atheist. I went through these bouts of, I don't know if God really exists, to saying more positively, God does not exist. The striking thing when I read a text like Romans chapter 1 is that the very time that I was denying God, <laughs> he was talking about me. He knew more about me in my denial than I knew about him in denying him. He was calling me foolish. And Psalm 14, verse 1, says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And right here in Romans chapter 1, Paul is saying, In foolishness and a darkened mind, people deny the truth that may be known about God plainly in his creation. And that was me. And I wonder if that might be some of us here this morning. And I wonder if you could see how foolish it would be to continue denying what is plain. If there is a creation, there is a creator. And that creator is greater than his creation. And that creation tells you that all the time. Believe what God is saying through the book of nature. But now we need something more if we would know God personally. Our statement of faith, the London Baptist Confession, in chapter 1, section 1, has these words, this sentence. It says, although the light of nature and God's work of creation and providence give such clear testimony to his goodness, wisdom, and power that men who reject him are inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient of themselves to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary for salvation. What our statement is saying is that although God speaks plainly and men may know something about God through the way he speaks in nature, that's not yet enough for us to know his will specifically and to know his will or to know him in a saving way, which raises our second question, really. Can we be sure we understand what God is saying? Can we be sure we understand what God is saying. And that's what we get going back to Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. We, we have a more sure way of knowing God and knowing his will than trying to read the tea leaves of creation. 
he has spoken to us in a more specific way. And so our statement of faith goes on to say this. The Holy Scripture is the all-sufficient, certain, and infallible rule or standard of the knowledge, faith, and obedience that constitutes salvation. It goes on to say, in consequence, the merciful Lord from time to time and in a variety of ways has revealed himself and made known his will to his church. And furthermore, in order to ensure the preservation and propagation of the truth, in other words, in order to protect the truth of who he is, and to ensure the establishment and comfort of the church against the corrupt nature of man and the malice of Satan in the world, God did something. He caused this revelation of himself and his will to be written down in all its fullness. As the, and as the manner in which God formally revealed his will has long ceased, the Holy Scripture becomes absolutely essential to men. Now, when we refer to the statement of faith in sentences like this, we, we realize we're quoting guys like us 400 years ago who were attempting to summarize what the Bible says. And so we see that some, we see the, the Bible speaking for itself in verses 7 to 11. And, and three things are being told there to us about how we know we can know what God has actually said. The first thing is the Bible is telling us that the Bible is the all-sufficient and perfect standard for knowing God. And we know this because here in verses 7 to 11, we get seven, or excuse me, six synonyms, six different words used to describe the same thing, used to describe the Bible itself. In Hebrew poetry, the repetition uh, and, and the synonymous statements are used for emphasis to sort of draw out different aspects of the same thing. And so here, if we take these six things in pairs, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of see more about the nature of the Bible. So notice, first of all, we're told in verse 7 that it's law and it's testimony. The Bible is law and the Bible is testimony. That's the language of the courtroom, right? In the Bible, we find the heavenly law of God. But also in the Bible, we find the testimony of God. In other words, God not only sends down the, the laws and the edicts, the statutes and the codes by which he governs his universe and governs his people, he also takes the stand and he witnesses. He gives testimony to what he has done and what we have done and what he will do or has done because of what he has done, we have done. So God is speaking here like one who has sworn an oath. The Bible says he having no higher authority by which to swear, he swore by himself. This testimony is in the Bible. This is the language of the courtroom. But notice this also, the Bible is called precepts and commandments. You see that there in verse 8? Precepts and commandments that have to do with instruction and teaching and learning to live with wisdom. Uh, the Scriptures is a kind of textbook. It is a kind of statement about how to live in a way that pleases God. And in it, we learn how, how to approach God, how to serve God, how to honor God. And nowhere else do we learn this with as much clarity as we do here in this book where God speaks to us. Then notice the last pair in verse 9. You look there with me. You see there, fear and rules. Fear is an interesting thing, isn't it? It's an interesting way to describe the word of God. 
Well, here, these couple of words are speaking to our posture before the word of God, our, our heart posture, our heart attitude. That word fear, another word for it is respect or reverence. We, we come to this book, and in it we learn to fear the Lord. And we come to this book in the fear of the Lord, and, and he speaks to us. And we, we come under this book, under its rule in our lives. And, and we learn what James says in James chapter 1, that we are to humble ourselves under the word of God, and it is able to save us. See, only Christians can know God's perfect will. Because only those who believe this book hear him speak specifically about his will. But those who truly know the Lord have the, have the Bible above them to rule them. They have the Bible beneath them as a firm foundation. They have the Bible before them as a guide. They have the Bible in them as a hope. They have the Bible behind them as a heritage left for others. I mean, this book defines the entire scope of our life and our faith. And this is why we give so much attention to it. And this is why if you're visiting with us this morning and this feels like a different kind of sermon that you've heard in most of your churches, well, it's because we, we like to celebrate, yes, and we like to get happy, yes, but most of all, we like to understand what God has said. And so we give ourselves to the patient instruction and teaching of God's word so that when we leave, we have more of it hidden in our hearts and we know how to please him as we live for him. Right? Notice the second thing. This Bible here is the all-sufficient uh, revelation of God's will, but it is also a never-failing. It is never-failing in the giving of the knowledge of God. And we see that there, again, across verses 7 and 11, these descriptions of the Bible. In verse 7, you see it there, it's perfect and sure. Or you may have a translation that says, it's blameless and sure. The Bible is without fault and is without error. It's striking to me how many times as we sort of walk down the streets of Southeast or, or we're in the coffee shop somewhere and we're having conversations with people and we begin to talk about the Bible, it's striking to me how many, how many times people immediately say, well, the Bible's written by men and it's full of errors. Anybody ever heard that? It comes real fast. And, and you say, um, show me one. Well, 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 well. I, well, I don't, know, I don't know one right now, but it is, it is. And you ask a follow-up question. Well, have you read the Bible? Well, I, you know, I saw some parts of it. I said, well, wait a minute, man. Are you going to tell me the Bible is full of errors and you haven't read it? You haven't studied it? Let's take a look at it before you reject it. That's what an honest man would do, right? He would take a look at something before he just rejects it out of hand. And, and, and let's start with what the Bible says about itself. The Bible says about itself in verse 7 that it is perfect and it is sure. It claims to be without error. It claims to be steady and without fault. In other words, this is trustworthy. You can put the, the weight of your entire destiny on top of this Bible, and it will never shake. It will never crumble. It will never falter. It will never deceive you. It is perfect and sure. And notice something else. Verse 8, it is right and pure. 
Y'all thought hip-hop started in Brooklyn somewhere, but see David rhyming here? You know, at least in the English translations, right? It is perfect and sure. It is right and pure. And this refers to the, the moral quality of the scriptures, the, the ethical quality of the scriptures. What the Bible teaches will not send you into sin. It won't send you into error. It won't send you into something wrong or unpleasing to God. It'll only send you into those things that are right before God, that are pleasing to God, that are good and true and wholesome. And this is why the Bible's a life-giving book, unlike other books. As I said before, I used to be a Muslim. And, and many people are troubled by Islam and they're troubled by those teachings in the Quran or those teachings in the Hadith that, that say things like, kill the infidel. We, we, we want to know what, how to make sense of that. If this is a religion of peace, why are such things prescribed by the religion? Now, when I'm talking with my Muslim friends, I just want to point out, you're not going to find that kind of command in the scripture. Instead, you'll find something like this. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Or love your enemies and those who persecute you. The Bible is, it's pure. It is right. It is holy. It is good. Even when God's people face something like their enemies, what God calls for from his word is a pure and holy reaction. You will never follow this book and end up astray. You, you will never follow this book and choose the wrong way because it is right and it is pure. Notice the last couplet, verse 9. It is enduring forever and righteous altogether. It's, it's not like the Bible's going to go out of style. It's not like there's a sunset date on the Bible. After, you know, sell by this date, after this is spoiled. You know, again, you hear people say things like, well, that's what Moses said back in that day, or that's what Paul said back in this day. But today, as if today is different from that day, as if sinners today are different from sinners back then, as if in the progress of time, humanity has gotten so much better that the things in this book are outdated and useless. It's just the kind of air people breathe. Notice what it says here. It is enduring forever and righteous altogether. Psalm 119.89 puts it this way. It says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Jesus, the Lord himself, puts it this way in Matthew 5, verse 18. He says there, not one jot or tittle. Not one iota or one period, not a single punctuation mark will pass away from God's word until it's all fulfilled. Well, this is the living, enduring word, always relevant, always true, always righteous, always good, surpassing time limits, crossing over cultural barriers, defying the, the limitations of education. This, this book right here speaks all the time, everywhere, to everybody, infallibly, perfectly. Perfect in its morality, perfect in its content, and so trustworthy for everyone who would believe. We want to know the mind of God. We need to know more than nature 
We need to know the book of God. One, one other thing about the Bible. The Bible is thoroughly effective at producing God's blessings. It's thoroughly effective at producing God's blessings. Again, we're looking at verses 7 to 11 in this poetry here. Notice the kinds of things that are said there. It revives the soul. It revives the soul. This means the Bible brings life to our inmost being. How many of us in our Christian experience have looked up one day and found ourselves dry, arid, languishing, and wasting away? And how many of us in those times are tempted to just keep pushing the Bible further and further away from ourselves? Find it harder and harder to pick it up and to open it and to read it? Begin to doubt that it will ever give us life? That's just our flesh. And that's just the weariness of the spiritual life sometimes. But look at what the book says. It revives the soul. It refreshes, it enlivens, it, it reinvigorates. What had been weak and languishing begins to, to find strength. And, and, and what had been wasted away is, is restored. And, and what had been dry is turned into a river of life. Because the Bible revives the soul. It has that quality. And this is why God's people, no matter how we struggle or feel, we, we are meant to remind ourselves, even take ourselves by the collar and come again and again to God's word and drink there from the water of life. It revives, beloved. Notice something else, verse 7. It makes wise the simple. It makes wise the simple. Here's a book that you don't have to be smart to read. Praise God. Yet it's a book that a simple person reading it becomes wise from. This is an amazing thing. You, you don't have to have education and degrees. You don't have to have big words and, and all that kind of stuff, letters after your name. But you come to the Bible, simple, foolish, unlearned, untutored, and give yourself the readingness, a verse or two at a time, then a paragraph at a time. And over time, you, you find out, you, you begin to know how to live. And, and you begin to acquire wisdom and understanding. And you begin to be able to apply what pleases God to your life. And, and you may be the, the most uneducated person in the church from a worldly standpoint, but in the, in, the, in the eyes of the church and the people of God and in the eyes of God, you tower like an oak because of the wisdom you've acquired from God's word. I mean, some of the strongest people I know in the faith never had more than an eighth grade education. And, and yet they, they wanted to learn to read enough so they can read the Bible. And, and faltering and stammering and struggling, they read the word and read the word and read the word and looked up one day and they were the word. Wise. This is the quality of this book. Our, our confession says in paragraph 7 of chapter 1, the contents of the scripture vary in their degree of clarity. Some things are easier to understand. Some things are more difficult. And some men have a better understanding of them than others, right? Yet, those things which are essential to man's salvation and which must be known, believed, and obeyed are so clearly propounded and explained in one place or another that men educated and uneducated may gain a sufficient understanding of them if they but use the ordinary means, if they would but read it 
and pray through it and listen to it preach, they will gain an understanding of what's essential. It makes wise to simple. The God who wrote the Bible is the same God who promises in James, if any man acts wisdom, let him ask. And he would give it generously. The main way that he does that is through his word. Notice something else about the blessings of the Bible. It rejoices the heart. Verse 8. This is close in meaning to reviving the soul. Uh, a revived soul is a happy soul. And when we read the Bible correctly, it, it makes us happy, even if it first makes us sad. Even if it first convicts us and challenges us, that conviction, if we're God's people, is often the cut that brings healing. Right? It, it eventually makes us glad in the Lord. Now remember, both nature and the Bible are mainly about God's glory. That's the message in the creation. That's the message in the scripture. God is glorious. Now, how is it that reading the Bible and rejoicing the heart comes from this message? Well, that's what John Piper has taught us in our, in our generation so well, hasn't it? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The greatest happiness we can have as creatures is to discover even the least glory of God our creator. The greatest happiness we can have as creatures is to discover even the least bit of glory of God our creator. Isn't that Moses' plea? He says, Lord, let me see your glory. In Exodus 33, and God says, no man can see my glory and live. He says, I tell you what, Moses, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and my glory will pass over you. And you'll see the hind parts of my glory, not the greater parts of my glory. You'll see the afterglow of my splendor. And don't you know, though the Bible doesn't say it in so many words, Moses' soul was filled with joy. We know that because of what David says. In, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there is pleasure forevermore. Just a glimpse, the glory of God. By faith as we read. And one day when he comes by sight as we are glorified with him. Will be the filling of our soul with a joy unlike any other. It revives the soul. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes, which is close to making the wise symbol. Uh, excuse me, the simple wise. And look down in verse 11. It warns. In the word of God, we find warnings from God. And these warnings are simply another aspect of his love. Now, don't we warn people that we love when they're in danger? A child approaches a hot stove. So don't touch that stove. Maybe even smack their hand. Your voice goes up. It's not because you don't love the child. It's because you do love the child. And in love, you're, you're setting proper boundaries for the child so that they would flourish and grow and be healthy and strong. Every good parent does that. And God, our Father, looking at his children, sets boundaries and, and gives warnings that we might find the borders in which there is safety and play all day inside of those borders. By the scriptures, his servant is warned. And when we heed his warnings, we walk in his law. Notice the other thing in verse 11. By keeping them, there is great reward. If we obey God and what we learn in his word, we receive great reward. 
This is not the great reward that you hear from television preachers promising you houses and, and jets and planes and trying to raise $64 million so they can get another jet and things of that sort. This is not that false promise of the prosperity gospel. The great rewards are already being detailed for us in verses 7 to 11. The reviving of the soul. The, the, the wise coming, being, becoming wise rather than simple and so on. The, the great reward and the greatest of rewards is God himself. And beloved, we are, we are called to believe that God is, in fact, a rewarder of those who seek him. You know what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven six: Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And, 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 and those who would draw near to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so we come to this book expecting reward, expecting to hear the warnings and to obey the instructions, and expecting that the goodness of God will be lavished upon our lives. Not in some worldly way, but in a way that draws us up in his glory, because that's what it's about, the glory of God. And that's why verse 10 gives us the attitude we should have. Look there with me. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, some preachers teach you to desire the gold. And here the Bible is very plainly saying, choose your finest gold, your purest gold, your Fort Knox gold. And the scriptures, verse by verse, are to be more desired than all the gold of the world. And not only desired, but sweetly satisfying. Sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb. This is how we are to receive God's word. As precious, inestimably precious, and sweet to the soul. Can we be sure of what God has said? Absolutely. It's by reading this book and embracing this book. Which brings us to our final question as we close. What should we do then when we hear God speak? What should we do when we hear God speak? Well, verses 12 and 14 tell us we should do one thing mainly, one thing clearly, at least initially, and that is we should pray. Verses 12 to 14 are prayers, really. And, and in verses 12 to 14, he prays really with regard to three things. And this would be our, our initial reaction to the word of God. In verse 12, he prays against hidden sin. See that there? Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Some of our sins are unknown to us. I mean, we, we think we know ourselves, don't we? But we don't know ourselves the way God knows us. We don't, we don't see our hearts the way God sees our hearts. We, we think we're driving in control of our lives and aware of the traffic around us, but we forget that little fine print on our mirrors. Objects in the mirror may be closer than they appear. Or the little side mirror which warns us that not everything beside us is in the view of that mirror. Our sin is like that. Our sin is closer than it appears. The writer of Genesis said it's crouching at our door, waiting to devour. It's closer than we think. 
And not all of it is, is in view. So he prays here, Lord, uh, help me with hidden sin. And how does he become aware of hidden sin? It's because he's been meditating on the nature of the word of God. That it is pure and it's perfect and it's sure. And God speaks in his word. And, and what does the holy God do when he speaks to us? Well, he does speak to us of his glory and his love. But the very sight of his glory makes us even more aware of our sin. That's what happened to Peter. When the Lord performed that miracle and they caught all that fish, Peter fell down and said, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. It's what happens to John in the book of Revelation. He sees even the angels and he falls down and begins to worship the angels for, for great were the angels. And the angel said, no, 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 no. Worship God alone. It's what happens to Samson's parents. They get a glimpse of the angel of the Lord who consumes a sacrifice that they offered. And, and the wife looked to Samson's dad and said, we're going to die. We just saw the Lord. <laughs> to get a glimpse of his holiness falls back into a glimpse of our corruption. Even hidden corruption that we hadn't seen prior to our study of the scripture. And so he prays, keep me from hidden sins. But notice he prays not only against hidden sins, he prays in verse 13 also against haughty sins. Haughty sins, sins of pride. He says they are presumptuous sins. Have you ever heard someone sinning about the sin says, you know what, I, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. God's going to forgive me anyway. Yeah, that's presumptuous sin. That's assuming that I can do this without any penalty. And, and God is going to forgive me. And, and me and God kind of, we have a relationship where I can do this and he winks at it and we cool. Oh, no, beloved. Oh, no. Our presumptuous sin is the most dangerous sin of all. Look at verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. And why is he concerned about that? Let them not have dominion over me. It's those sins that we think are okay that more strongly enslave us. They dominate us. They control us. And in part because we keep saying, this is okay. God won't be angry with me if. I know God said, but. See, this is unlike hidden sin. This is actually known sin. This is what the Bible calls sinning with a high hand. It's a proud sin. The third thing he prays. He prays against hidden sin. He prays against haughty sin. He prays against hypocritical sin. Verse 14, those well-known words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He's trying to get his mouth and his heart to line up with God. And he's trying to get them acceptable in his sight. He's, he's well aware that he can say one thing with his lips and, and, and believe another thing in his heart. That he can praise God with his lips and his, hearts be, his heart be far away from God. He doesn't want that. He wants the meditation of his heart, the things that he thinks most deeply on and longs most deeply for, and the, and the things that he speaks, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He wants all of that to be acceptable in God's sight. And so he prays against that hypocrisy that so easily affects us all. Again, you hear people say, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. We know. <laughs> we know we is one and you are too 
as if the hypocrites in the world are somehow better off than the hypocrites in the church. Look, we're here where we find forgiveness and help for our sins. Not out there where people kill you in their hypocrisy. Oh, the hypocrisy of the unbelieving world is far worse than the failings and the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies of people striving after God. Far worse. And when you think about this prayer in response to God's word, you get the sense that the problem, again, is not God's word, but man's ways. We, we don't find salvation outside his word and inside our hearts. No, no, no. We find salvation outside of our hearts and inside his word. That's where he speaks to us about how we may know him. And because the word of God answers this man's prayers, he has hopes. Notice what he wants in verse 11. He wants God to declare him innocent from hidden faults. He's seeking this innocency before God. He wants God to free him from the control of presumptuous sins so that he can be noticed blameless and innocent of great transgression. Verse 14, he wants his heart and mouth to be acceptable in God's sight. For that to happen, beloved, God must be his rock and his redeemer. You see that there in verse 14? Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In other words, God must be the one he trusts and builds his life upon. And God must be the one who redeems or buys him back from sin. You see? The word of God makes it plain that our problem is inside us and our solution is outside of us. The solution is God. The salvation that he offers he must redeem us. And the Bible tells us how God has done that. It tells us of God's son, who is also called the rock, the rock of our salvation. That God's son came into the world, born of a virgin. In fact, the Bible tells us that God's son, Jesus Christ, is the word made flesh. And that this word, John chapter 1, tabernacled among us. He put on a human tent and lived among us. And in his life, in his earthly life, the Son of God never sinned. No hidden sin, no hypocritical sin, uh, no, 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 no presumptuous sin. He was sinless in every way and without fault. He is the innocent one. He is the blameless one. And he lived that way in order to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's law. And he lived that way in order to provide to God the obedience that we could not. And as a sinless sacrifice, the Son of God died upon the cross. He was killed there. And worse than the killing, worse than the crucifixion, he was judged there. That's where God the Father laid all of our sin upon his Son and punished his Son for our sin. He died, but three days later he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave having defeated death, having satisfied God's judgment, and having secured our righteousness. And now God declares in this book and through the preaching of this book that all men everywhere repent of their sins and believe in his son. That they, they turn away from presumptuous sins. They turn away from hidden sins when they're made known. That they turn away from uh, hypocritical sin. 
And they turn to the Son of God and they say, you promised to be my righteousness and you promised to take away my sins in your sacrifice. I'm claiming that. I need that. I cannot be innocent before God apart from you. You are my innocence. All my trust is in you. And for all of my life, I'll follow you as your disciple in faith. And the Bible promises and God never lies His word is perfect and it is sure that everyone who trusts in Christ will have their sins removed, will have them completely forgiven. And everyone who trusts in Christ will be declared righteous before God as if they had never sinned the way Christ has never sinned. And everyone who believes in Christ will not only die one death, they will live forever. That death will be defeated because Christ has defeated it. And not only that, They will be God's people, and God himself will be their God, and God will be their exceeding and great reward. And one day they will see him, and the very act of seeing him will transform them into his glory, and we will share together with him the joy of his glory for all of eternity, without sin, without death, without sickness, without unrighteousness, forever in the presence of God. This is why we call this good news. This is why we call this the gospel. And this is why we exist as a church. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet sure that you've heard God speak clearly, that you heard him speak about his glory in his son, and you're not yet sure that you have believed what he said and received the blessings that he offers in the forgiveness of sin and eternal life, We would like nothing more than to talk with you after this service. We'd like nothing more than to tell you more about this Jesus. There are many members of this church who who, they just love to tell people about this good news. In fact, I'm going to ask them to raise their hands. If you feel like you can help someone understand this basic gospel message this morning, if they have questions, just raise your hand wherever wherever you're sitting. So you see all around this place, there are people who would share this message with you. My plea with you is that you recognize God has spoken to you this morning. Not in the general speaking of creation, but in a specific speaking of his word, the Bible. And he has told you this morning, oh man, how you must be saved. Don't harden your heart. Don't get distracted. Don't turn away to other things. When God speaks to you, listen. Listen and believe what he says and receive him by faith. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Father, what a marvelous thing that you speak to us. The God of heaven, the God of all creation, all wise, all powerful, (laughs) ruler of the universe. You stoop low to consider us creatures. You you, you come to us even though we're sinners. Mm -hmm. And you tell us of your glory and you tell us of your love and you tell us how we may know you and how we may be yours and you may be ours through faith in Jesus Christ, your son. 
Oh God, how good of you to speak to us. Oh God, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what you say. Let him hear the truth about their sin. And rather than try to hide it when you bring it to light, let them bring it to you that you might hide it in the blood of Christ. Let them confess it with the eager confession of faith, believing that just as you promised, you would forgive them and cleanse them and make them righteous in your son. And let them receive it. And let those of us who are your people who have heard this good news and already believed and have entered into a life of belief, let us go on believing. And let us go on trusting your word and revive our souls by it. Make us wise. Grant that we should find life in your word. Oh, Lord, for surely there are many of us here who, who have been coming to your word lately and, and it's been like coal encased in a diamond. And we have been discouraged and we have become dry. Revive us, oh, Lord, we pray. And give us faith enough to come back to your book and let us pray there and speak to us there. Oh, Lord, surely there are those who are here who are lacking wisdom. Oh, Lord, give them wisdom as you promised. And let them seek it in your book and not in their own minds and, and not in the ways of the world and, and, and not by trying to pluck some message out of the sky. But in the certainty of your book, let them trust. Father, thank you for your word. Establish us, up, establish us upon it, we pray. Give us life and joy and peace through it, we ask. In Jesus' name.